1: We all know that symbols have meaning, but how does that meaning change when the symbol is placed in different cultural contexts? This is what Philip Penix-Tadson explores in his new book, Cultural Code, Video Games and Latin America. And we have him on the show today. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. we're here with Philip Penix-Tadson, and he is the author of the new book, Cultural Code, Video Games in Latin America. So one of the first things we always like to do on uh, New Books and Technology is to have the author tell us something about himself. So basically, who is Philip Tadson?
0: Um Great. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, I am an assistant professor of Spanish and Latin American studies at University of Delaware. Um, I'm a... Latin Americanist who does work on cultural studies and particularly on the intersections between politics, economics, and creative cultural production Mm -hmm. in contemporary Latin America. Um, I teach classes about uh, different aspects related to those things, uh, politics and art and uh, media production in Latin America, as well as literature and film. Um, And those are the kind of academic interests that led into this book, basically, too.
1: All right. So when you said creative cultural production, what does that mean? Um, So cultural production, when I talk about cultural
0: production, uh, basically the creation of um, anything from literature to film to television to the things that I've been working on more recently, uh, video games and other forms of electronic media, uh, blogs and viral videos. Some of these things entered into my doctoral dissertation before I was working on this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from the field of literary studies, basically. Um, and the field of literary studies has been continually diversifying and becoming more focused on a cultural studies approach that, Kind of takes some of the uh, analytical framework for looking at literature and incorporates other sorts of critical frameworks that allow us to analyze um, products like video games or film in, uh, in ways that in a lot of ways are similar to literary analysis, but use tools specific to those different media um, in order to kind of unpack their meaning and their uh, cultural impact.
1: Well, that's good because in in this book, cultural code, you talk about you use a specific methodology, ludology, if if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. And so perhaps you can like explain what ludology is. Sure, absolutely. Um,
0: Ludology is a term that, within the context of game studies, was coined by a Uruguayan. Uh, scholar, and game developer named Gonzalo Frasca. Mm -hmm. And Frasca coined the term ludology to, um, to, he he defined it as basically a way of examining video games as such, Uh, examining video games in their uniqueness, and uh, therefore kind of looking at the way that um, games produce meaning, procedurally through gameplay, interactively in ways that are non-narrative in ways that make it so that we can't read a video game like we read a book, but rather have to look at the internal mechanisms at work and the way that they um, create meaning. In, in ways specific to the medium and in ways that depend on player interaction in order to unlock that meaning. So ludology um, is a term that's been around a while in game studies to refer to looking at games as unique products and looking at the specific kind of um mechanisms and programming that goes into producing game meaning. And in this book, uh, cultural code, I am trying to uh, develop a somewhat novel methodology that I refer to as cultural ludology. Um, basically the ludologists with Frasca at the front of the group, but there are other um, people who would be included, have sometimes been criticized for, kind of inward focus on the game itself and losing touch with the other ways that meaning circulates around video games. And so for me, one of the main ways that meaning is created around um, any cultural product, but video games in particular, is the way uh, the cultural context in which those games are created and developed, in which the ideas for these games come about. And then, of course, in the ways that uh, games are marketed, circulated, sold, and consumed and played by consumers. So all of those um, factors are affected by the cultural context in which those games are being produced and consumed. And that's what I really want to look at. In uh, developing a cultural ludology, is the way that cultural context, the context of play, and the context of production also affect the way that game games meaning uh, is is produced.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about yeah in the book you talked about the the coded mechanisms at work, and I I thought about the the double. Uh, kind of meaning for that. So video games are coded, right? But also the codes, the cultural codes or translations even um, necessary for particular audiences, how they translate that as well. Um, Right.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely what I'm getting at with uh, the title of the book that um, video games at their base are, products of computer code. And so they are products of software, but at the same time that code itself is cultural. It's affected by the cultural perspectives of game designers. And it's also, uh, it, it portrays culture. And so a lot of what I look at in the book are also portrayals of Latin American culture specifically. And these specific kind of ways that game designers put uh, culture into games in the form of um, signs and symbols, as well as the way that culture is incorporated into game spaces. And so that's what I'm getting at uh, by talking about cultural code, is that code itself is cultural in nature. And also, as you alluded to, um, the cultural codes that we all live by in our own cultures, the kind of cultural background and ideas that we have as individuals and as gamers can also affect the way that we receive a game. So I talk about, for example, um, how a U.S.-based player playing a game like Call of Duty might not Take the same messages, cultural messages, out of it that a player in Brazil does when you're playing a game that is set in Brazil. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of talk about the ways that different um, familiarity with different cultural contexts and different cultural expectations can affect the way that we interpret games' meaning.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's get let's get more into the book. Um, uh-huh. So you talk about the idea of signification. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could like talk about signification, um, to the, to, to our audience and what does that actually mean? But, but then how does signification play a role in, uh, these, these video games? Right.
0: So signification is basically just another term for making meaning mm-hmm. or meaning making and, any um, sort of cultural product, whether it's literature or or film or a video game, um, has a unique process of making meaning, of signifying um, everything, and of signifying culture in particular. So um, I talk in the book, basically the book has two halves, and the first half of the book is about how culture uses games, and there I'm talking about um, the kind of cultural history of production, marketing, um, political controversies, as well as consumption practices in Latin America. And then the second half of the book is about how games use culture. And that's where I'm more talking about um, the signifying processes of games. And Mm -hmm. so I have a chapter on semiotics, which is the word um, for the study of signifying processes. And so semiotics looks at, um, the relationship between the signifier and the signified um, basically goes back to the French theorist Ferdinand de, de Saussure, um, as well as later theorists who've worked on semiotics of a lot of different fields. But it, you know, at its base, semiotics is talking about um, when you have a word like table, that is the signifier and the signified is the concept that is kind of the picture in your head when you hear that word table. And so it's talking about the relationship between a sign that is put out there, in that case a word, but in a video game, say for example, um, a soccer field can be a sign of culture, of Brazilian culture, for example, in certain games, or um, a Mayan or Aztec, Pyramid is another cultural sign. And so when I'm talking about signification, I'm talking about the ways that game makers employ those types of signs um, in order to produce cultural context, in order to give a gamer a sense of the cultural environment that they're inhabiting within a game.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's, let's get into the book even more and the, the, the perhaps overarching topic of the book. And, mm-hmm. and the question I have is why has Latin American say video game production, gaming in general, why is that so uh, ignored up until this point? Um, well, I think
0: that it's, it's a very good question. It's something that has kind of been off the radar by and large, for one thing, game studies as a discipline uh, has really come about over the last two decades and especially has grown in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, when we when Game Studies has come about, it's largely been out of Europe and the United States and has largely focused on Europe and the United States as well as places like Japan, um, which are big game producers. Right. So that has kind of in some ways led to a bit of a critical tunnel vision that ignores the production um, and consumption of video games in places in the so-called periphery, uh, including Latin America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East. There's very little kind of work on the ways that video games have circulated in those other spaces outside of the kind of mainstream centers of game production and sales. And what I'm trying to do is uh, bring a a bit more perspective as to um, what the practices of production and consumption of games have been in Latin America and how they've differed from the things that we've come to expect from the ways that games are marketed and played in the United States or Europe. So I talk about Things like the cyber cafe in Latin America that's had a really big kind of democratizing role. It's spread mm-hmm. games to a much broader population than might be perceptible when we look at sales figures, for example. Um, because we have a in in many countries in Latin America and pretty much every country in Latin America, there's been um, a, a role of the cyber cafe that is unique in the United States. We don't have that many cyber cafes. It hasn't really been a cultural phenomenon of great impact, but in Latin America, where there is a much um, higher barrier to access to technologies in mm-hmm. large part because of taxation, high taxes on imports from the United States and Asia, um, as well as economic disparities that make it difficult for the average person to say buy a new xbox or something like that um the cyber cafe then is a a unique institution in that one cyber cafe owner can just buy a couple of consoles maybe one copy of a game but hundreds of people might be playing that game so it's spreading access to a much broader population than we might perceive otherwise um and I think that the one reason that we haven't seen as much work on places like Latin America in game studies is that there is such a link between scholarship on games and the game industry. And mm-hmm. in that sense, the places where that make the most money are the places that have been most interesting to game scholars by and large, um, Meanwhile, you know, there, there have always been games circulating in Latin America since the medium was born. Um, but the ways that they've circulated have been different. Not just the cyber cafe, but there's a, a kind of famously high level of video game piracy, software piracy Mm -hmm. in Latin America. And in the book, I talk about a lot of the factors that have brought about that high level of software piracy or um, other forms of software modification. And really, the reasons are less about economic opportunism and stealing intellectual property and making money on it. Um, For me, the reasons for piracy in Latin America have much more to do with the fact that the um, official industry giants of the video game world, like uh, Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft, have largely ignored the Latin American market until very recently. Um, in many cases, having no official presence in Latin America over the course of the 1990s, for example. And so people have very few viable opportunities to buy legal, um, you know, mass market video game hardware and software in Latin America. And so the the practices of circulation changed as a result. And piracy has really um, become a much greater factor. And again, piracy is another kind of democratizing factor, another factor that spreads access beyond what we can detect when we look at um, statistics of sales in the video game industry. Mm -hmm. So those kind of measures that we're used to looking at when we look at the way that video games impact society um this game sold this many million copies etc um don't reflect in the same way in Latin America because we need a different approach and a different understanding of um circulation of technologies like these uh in in regions outside of the mainstream
1: hmm. so i think even though it's a region that's necessarily outside of the mainstream with respect to the study of the use of games and and penetration of games, perhaps Latin American or uh, symbols of Latin America appear prominently in some of the, the largest or most well-known games. So we talk about um, um, the pyramids, uh, Mayan pyramids, or we talk about um, the Brazilian, uh, the, the Christ figure. Right. So those appear prominently and people understand those, particularly we think about the United States. They perhaps recognize where they're from, but they have different meanings, perhaps, in Latin America than in the United States. Am I getting that correct? Right.
0: Right. Absolutely. And I think that. Um, one of the things that I was interested in doing with this book is looking at a history of Latin American cultural representation and what have become kind of the tropes or the normal ways to represent Latin American culture over the history of the video game medium. And a lot of these things are just kind of a shorthand for cultural representation. Those Mayan and Aztec pyramids are a perfect example because – from the very dawn of the medium, the late 1970s, early 1980s of the commercial medium of video games, um, we've had games set in the Mayan and Aztec world. Um, these a lot of those early games are produced at the same time as the Indiana Jones movies, and they kind of emulated that um, pseudo archaeological kind of approach. Um, but over time, the just throwing in a Mayan or Aztec Temple has become a kind of shorthand for, oh, this is where we are. We're in a different cultural context now. And so um I look at recent games like say um I think the most recent or the second most recent Call of Duty, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare has a map that is set in a kind of Mayan temple. Um, And there, you know, there's a firefight going on. There's all these people shooting at each other in in a Mayan temple. And to me, it's almost, I don't know if it's a bit um, lazy or cliche sometimes on the part of a designer to just kind of throw in the same temple that we've basically seen um, progress from this two dimensional, simplistic early form in video games to a much more, Um, thoroughly rendered kind of visual environment, but at the same time, it's kind of, it's not really pushing the envelope as far as cultural representation. So I look at some of those things and it's not just to criticize game designers, but to see the ways that those um, tropes and those classic symbols have developed over time. And um, what you alluded to, as far as these types of signs having a different meaning players in different places is something I talk about as well. Uh, I talk about how it's perhaps different to play a game about the drug war in Mexico if you are in the United States versus if you are a player in Mexico um, or the ways that different players can pay attention to different details. I think, for example, about the game Max Payne 3, which mm-hmm. is set in brazil um i play that game and i really focused in on a lot of the um cultural detail and the depth of detail that they went into and i I think that the designers really in a lot of ways did a commendable job of um rendering a very complex kind of non-cliche um uh Brazilian cultural environment and really added a lot of great detail and did a, an enormous amount of research and development into creating that context. Um, but then I gave a talk at um, the Digital Games Research Association conference about uh, the Brazilian favela in the, the shanty town mm-hmm. and the shantytown that it's represented in different video games. And I had several um, colleagues who were Brazilian and also scholars of electronic media, and one of them commented to me that all that she could pay attention to when she was playing the game were the failures of <laughs> presenting Brazilian culture that for her as a Brazilian player, all she could notice was where they fell short and where it didn 't quite fit correctly when you know they 're trying to evoke this sense of Brazilianness or Brazilian culture and all kind of all that I noticed are the ways that they did it successfully and all that she noticed were the ways that they were not successful. And so I think that it brings um, a, a, that cultural familiarity, that familiarity with the context being represented um, really brings a different perspective to the player. And that's another way that your cultural background, your the, co- the context in which you're um, playing that game as well as where you come from can affect what that game means to you and what it's called cultural representation means. And even how good of a cultural representation it ultimately is can really depend on who's applying the criteria of what makes a good or authentic cultural representation.
1: You know, it's interesting because this brings about a larger, I guess, um, debate happening in society that's been happening for a while, but now it's bubbling to the surface. Is about representation and cultural representation. Mm-hmm. And and re- with respect to technology, technology is always thought to be this like liberating thing. And yet the same problems that we had with other um, creative productions or products, uh, books and film, <laughs> And television shows uh, uh, are still with us. With you know these highly technical, um, creative, cultural products like video games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, I think they're you know early in the history of the internet. For example, I think people really saw this as a kind of um, place of anonymity and of kind of uh, everyone being on a level playing field in terms of cultural background and of factors like um, race and gender being made invisible by the fact of uh, being represented online or being a kind of anonymous avatar online. Mm-hmm. But more recently, that concept of invisibility has really come under fire. And there's been great work by people like Lisa Nakamura, um, who has a book called cyber types. That was one of the earlier studies to really, I think uh, nail this dynamic in the ways that um, cultural factors are indeed revealed and uh, online that people's identity does not remain secret. And that moreover, cultural background affects the ways that we interpret messages, not to mention the types of messages that are being put out there by video games. So there are um, no shortage of examples of games that are very uh, culturally reductive, that are racist or misogynist, or um, that just kind of uh, reiterate the same sort of tired perspectives on culture that we've seen, um, as you referred to, in other media over the centuries. So in a lot of ways, you know, video games and other electronic media just kind of um, modify those uh, conventional cultural perspectives, but kind of repeat them and reiterate them and give them a new face. But at the same time, they're not really... Um, changing those dynamics. So, that's on on the one hand, you know, there's no shortage of examples of games that do a bad job of mm-hmm. representation. But it was really important to me in this book to look at games that do a good job of cultural representation and yes. why it is that um, those game designers are successful and what they do differently about representing culture um, that adds to the quality of their games. And mm-hmm. so, I talk, for example, about, um, games that kind of more directly take on issues of race and culture economics. Um, I think for example, about a Brazilian game called Capoeira legends path to freedom mm-hmm. uh, Capoeira is a Brazilian martial art form, um, that was created by, um, slaves in Brazil as a kind of mix between dance and self-defense, uh, kind of disguised self-defense as dance, and ultimately um, came about in the context of slave rebellions and things. So there's a game out of Brazil um, relatively recently, maybe about five years old, um, that is set in 19th century Brazil in a slave rebellion, where you're playing as a slave rebelling against these um, slave owners and and kind of going through uh, the whole process of confronting these historical dynamics of racism at the same time as you're learning kind of culturally relevant context for capoeira, which remains an extremely popular practice in Brazil today and has become a kind of essential part of the way that Brazilian culture um, is seen throughout the world. So I wanted to look at practices like that that are coming often from... Uh, people who have an informed perspective on the cultural mm-hmm. environments and contexts that they're representing
1: mm-hmm.
0: they're Not games designed from the outside for the outside, but rather say a game designed in Brazil, largely for Brazilian consumption. Mm-hmm. Or I think of other examples that I look at in the book. Um, another example is a game called Guacamele. Mm-hmm. Guacamele um, is a game that is set in Mexico. It was actually designed in Toronto by an independent game uh, firm called Drinkbox Studios, but it was the brainchild of a Mexican animator um, who worked at that studio. And I think that the kind of insider perspective that this Mexican animator um, brought to the development process and his kind of fearlessness with playing with and sending up stereotypes not not um, just using stereotypes in this traditional conventional way but at the same time not shying away from stereotypes like the 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 protagonist of the game is a Mexican wrestler which we see in a lot of <laughs> video games as well um, there's all kinds of I don't know there's uh, tequila drinking kind of drunks and there's uh, uh, Catholic uh, friars who a lot of these kind of Conventional symbols of um, culture in Mexico, but that are played with in a very humorous, self-conscious way um, that I think comes from that insider perspective.
1: Well, I think that that leads to kind of the question about cultural currency. Mm -hmm. So uh, people recognizing those um, those messages, but also being able to to use them a bit um, as as in in group I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps you could talk a bit about that. The whole idea of cultural currency, particularly when we talk about developers or video game makers who are in, um, in group or at least in Latin America.
0: Right. So the, the, um, kind of underlying premise of the book is that culture and games have specific uses for one another and that that picking apart kind of what those uses are and the ways that games are used as something other than just entertainment, leisure play. um, The ways that games can be um, culturally expedient, can be useful to people Mm -hmm. for reasons other than gameplay was something that really, Motivated me to more explore that relationship between games and culture. So one of the biggest ways you can see this is in um, political uses of video games. And so on the one hand, um, in the chapter where I talk about politics and persuasion, um, the idea of persuasive games is uh, based on a book by Ian Bogost, uh, Persuasive Games. (laughs) And a lot of people also talk about um, serious games in the same way. persuasive games is kind of, Bogost's way of reframing that discussion. Um, but kind of games that are meant to um, provide the player with a politically or ideologically challenging experience and cause them to question um, geopolitics and things like this are one interesting use of games. It kind of goes outside of the normal kind of escapist fantasy leisure uh, hobby approach to gameplay that I think a lot of people assume that that's the only reason people play games. Um, So look at specific games uh, such as Gonzalo Frasca's games, September 12th, and Madrid, both of which are different sort of commentaries on the war on terror. Um, And those are games that have actually attracted a lot of scholarly attention for being serious games and they are kind of uh, models for Uh, persuasive or serious games, but then I look at some of the other games that have been uh, studied a bit less, several of which are based on um, the dynamics of the U.S.-Mexico border. So I talk about um, two games by a developer called Rafael Fajardo, and Fajardo made two games, um, Crosser and La Migra, La Migra being the name for um, the Immigration and Naturalization police. Service, the right. yeah. Border Police. <laughs> um, and, and his games are these very simple web games that reimagine classic game dynamics. So Crosser is a border version of Frogger, where you're the border crosser crossing from Mexico into the United States. And you have these kind of different obstacles like you did in the original Frogger. Um, and La Migra is an adaptation of Space Invaders. Where you're on the other side, you're playing as the border patrol um, officer who is then throwing these shooting out handcuffs to try and arrest um, the people who are crossing uh, without documentation. So these are games that ultimately kind of have the same message about the futility of border militarization and of trying to um, resolve issues of immigration through just policing or a military approach. Um, so I was really interested in looking at those things. There's another great example, Turista Fronterizo or border tourist, Mm -hmm. which was made by, um, two artists, Coco Fusco and Ricardo Dominguez. Um, and it is a version of Monopoly set on the border. And the player can play as two U.S. characters or two Mexican characters, um, each of whom has their own kind of economic and cultural background. And it's an ingenious little art game because it, it's, all of those characters have different outcomes on the same spaces given their own kind of cultural backgrounds. So I talk about... Those oh. persuasive games as a use, please. Go ahead.
1: I don't mean no. I don't mean to interrupt you. It's just, it's just a question that that arises. So, while you were writing this book and researching, was part of your research playing a lot of games?
0: Oh yes, oh, <laughs> yes. I played many more games and many more types of games than I've ever played in my life. So, I've been a lifelong video gamer. Um, but I'm the kind of person who would usually like. Get one game and get really into it and play it for a year straight, and then just get the next game and play it for a year straight. And so, you know, I was always playing games, but um, more kind of in depth in single games than breadth of playing a lot of different genres and things. And so, researching this book, I discovered all kinds of new genres of games mm-hmm. political games, but also, for example, resource management simulators like Sid Meier's Civilization. Or Tropico. I'd never really played that genre of game. So it was really um, it, it, one of the best parts of the process for me was like expanding my own game literacy, expanding my own experience of playing games of different genres and games that I might not otherwise have gotten into or, you know, kids education games, games that are made for elementary school kids. These are things that would not have crossed my uh, computer desktop as just a person playing games for leisure But in academic pursuit, um, I played an incredible number of games. (laughs) I was certainly one of the most enjoyable parts of the book and the, the kind of beginning of the research process definitely involved several months of just kind of playing every game that I could find that was either set in Latin America or that was created in Latin America.
1: Well, you know, you have to be thorough, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so so have you found a difference between those games that are kind of a closed universe wherein the the developer has made all the characters and all the, the backgrounds and all the perhaps weapons or gifts or whatever the case would be and those mm-hmm. in which the um, player actually get, gets to participate in the creation of, say, characters and, and, and gifts and things like that?
0: Yes, absolutely. I think um, that user-produced content or player-produced content um, as well as software modification, just modding where people um, can kind of build their own maps um, or kind of make their own costumes and things like this and kind of create their own avatars. They really have different implications for the way the culture is represented. And um, I think that some of the most compelling Examples of this um, show the way that, you know, Latin American game designers and modding communities um, fill in these holes that are left by the supposedly global game market that is Mm -hmm. still very U.S. centered or Eurocentric. I think for one of the examples that I talk about in the book Is, um, a game called MVP Caribe, Mm -hmm. and it's a modification of MVP Baseball 2005. It's still extremely popular, you know, over 10 years later, um, after basically that game itself, the original game, MVP Baseball 2005, just faded into obscurity. Nobody's really playing that game, um, outside of these modding communities, but, A community of modders based out of uh, Venezuela with help from Mexico and the Dominican Republic kind of totally did an overhaul, a makeover of this game. And they put in all of the Caribbean League teams, all Mm -hmm. of the teams from their countries with their uniforms. They built models of the stadiums. And these are all things that were basically enabled um, by the games publisher providing open source software that people could go in and modify. And that's a way that the game industry also has come to embrace software modification. Whereas they used to be afraid of piracy or people stealing their code or stealing their ideas. Um, I think that more and more the game industry is realizing that um, opening up uh, to user produced content is a way of, making it more relevant to the player, giving them more input into the game and of even prolonging the shelf life of those games. You know, that there's still this game being played a decade later that otherwise, you know, would have just been collecting dust. So, um, I think it's really interesting to look at the ways that, um, that modders like that are kind of filling in the the blank spaces and producing culturally relevant content um, that the mainstream game industry isn't doing themselves.
1: Yeah. You know, so what do you see as the future for games and, you know, this creative cultural production coming from Latin American countries?
0: I think that, Um, there's a rapidly shifting landscape of game development and consumption worldwide and uh, that this is especially visible in Latin America and this rapidly shifting terrain largely has to do with the advent of casual games, of games that are played on mobile devices or online or on social media and those types of games um, really change uh, the world of video games in a lot of ways. One way is they open it up to an enormous new population of players. And a lot of people who didn't used to consider themselves gamers are now playing games on their phone all the time. Um, I had to break it to my mother that she was a hardcore gamer, even though she didn't think of herself as a gamer. (laughs) She's always playing words words with friends or whatever (laughs) on her phone. And and there's so many – of these people who were not conventionally gamers who have now kind of been opened up to a new type of video gaming where the games maybe have an easier level of entry. It's no longer about those PlayStation and Xbox controllers with the 20 buttons that your person who didn't grow up on them can't really just jump in and and get into Um, casual games, open it up to a new audience. So that's one thing is that in Latin America as well, Um, cellular phone access and smartphone access has really expanded very rapidly over the last 10 years um, simultaneously with the expansion in casual game production and consumption. Um, Today, the the, uh, number of cellular subscriptions in Latin America outnumbers landline telephones four to one. So there is a huge expansion in cellular access that has totally changed the media scape in Latin America. So that's one thing on the level of access. The other thing about casual games and the way that they change the future for Latin American game development is that there's a much lower kind of level of entry for a game developer um, where a game like call of duty has 200 people working for two years to produce a game. That's going to sell for $60 or a game like grand theft auto has 500 people working for five years to produce a game that's going to sell for $60. A lot of casual games that come out of Latin America, and even some that have been extremely successful, like Kingdom Rush from Uruguay, or Trivia Crack from Argentina, these are extremely popular games, but they're produced by anywhere from two to a dozen people, or even one person, um, that produce these games over generally the course of a year or two, and that basically they can get on the market for 99 cents or for free. And then people kind of pay for in-game add-ons and things. And at the same time, these games are as profitable or often more profitable than those kind of AAA titles, those big $60 games that were played on consoles. So when I think about the future of gaming and game production in Latin America, in a lot of ways um, I'm thinking about casual games um, but also looking hopefully toward. Um, the ways those casual game developers then can go on to make bigger and better games as the years go on, that their experience and their ability to make money on games um, without having to be operating on that huge industrial level that used to be the standard for the video game industry um, just opens up all kinds of new opportunities and I think that will also allow some of these studios to build up a portfolio and go beyond just the casual game world and produce more ambitious projects in the future.
1: Mm -hmm. So so we've come to the portion of New Books and Technology that we like to call the elevator pitch. So Mm -hmm. pretend as though somebody just stumbles upon this podcast at this point. Mm -hmm. You want to tell them why should they pick up a copy of Cultural Code? Uh, And you have one minute to tell them why they should pick it up. What would you say?
0: I would say that Um, Looking at a place, uh, a region like Latin America and and examining um, the ways video games circulate in Latin America can really tell us a lot about video games and um, their cultural impact that we don't already know. And so... It can take us beyond thinking of games in terms of just economics or in terms of just leisure and look at the way that they affect political practices, look at the way that um, they reflect cultural. Background, both in the context of development and consumption and in cultural representation. So to understand all the ways that Latin America has been represented in the several decades of video game production and to understand the unique practices that have come about, in creating, buying, playing games in Latin America um, really offers us a kind of unique perspective outside of the ways that we're used to looking at and understanding video games and shows that they have a much greater cultural impact and that that cultural impact is much more widespread throughout the world than is generally assumed.
1: Sounds good. So, so what's next for you? Um, good question. I'm, uh, I'm uh,
0: just... Basically, the ink is just drying on, on the book. It's just fresh off the presses. So I'm really, um, you know, still celebrating that, enjoying that. But I am trying to put together an anthology um, working with Latin American game scholars and Latin Americanist game scholars um, who um, I, I hope to kind of put together a, uh, a collected group of essays that will look at the history of gaming and game development in Latin America on an even more specific level from people who are working in their own individual country or city in Latin America and who have their own kind of unique personal experiences with growing up with game development in Latin America. So hopefully, I'm I'm basically hoping to attract a lot more people to do this type of work and to expand on the possibilities for cultural ludology.
1: That sounds good. So if we want to read more from you, where can they go? Um, well, I, you can basically Google my name. You can look it <laughs> up
0: on uh, academia.edu. So there's um, my book is, of course, the biggest thing uh, that, that you could read from me, but then I've also got several other things. There's an online, um, uh, an online kind of excerpt from the book that people can find on the, uh, the Coleccion Cisneros website. Um, there's also several academic articles and book chapters that I've published. If you find me on academia.edu, you can basically dig up all of those things if people are interested in reading them.
1: So the book is Cultural Code, Video Games and Latin America. And we've had on with us Philip Penix Tadson. And this has been a great discussion about all things video games and cultural representation and cultural currency. And so we thank you for coming on New Books and Technology.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. I appreciate
1: it. No problem. So this has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week.